0: you're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Good afternoon, I'm T. Hetzel and you've got Living Writers. And today I'm so happy um, to have joining me via technology, Eduardo C. Corral. Eduardo, welcome to Living Writers in our our virtual
1: space here. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Well, it's great to, to meet you. It's great to great to um we're zooming and it's thanks- funny how
1: every like natural disaster or like a huge historical event introduces new words into our daily vocabulary like zooming and zoom has it's a new word for us right that we know what it means now right so
0: Right. I'll be so happy the day that it becomes less um less of a daily word, you know?
1: Zoom optional.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Zoom optional, exactly. Yeah. yeah, completely. And before we jump into the conversation the conversation today, I've got guillotine here out with Grey Wolf Press, uh, August 2020. So right. this this is this is a new lovely book in the world. So without further ado, your bio in the back of guillotine. Eduardo C. Corral is the son of Mexican immigrants. His first book, Slow Lightning, won the Yale Younger Poets Prize. He is the recipient of a Whiting Award, a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship, and a Hodder Fellowship from Princeton University. He teaches in the MFA program in Creative Writing at North Carolina State University.
1: Yeah, that's me. Sounds like me. That <laughs> <Yes. sounds> like... <laughs>
0: You've got the right living writer. <laughs> you
1: got the right one, yes. Woo. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> well, Eduardo, let's let's start with um, what was it like to get the the first the arc in the the mail when you first saw Guillotine, and this this book coming, I don't know, going from your poems in the notebooks, if I'm right, because I think yep. you use notebooks yep. Yep. A, yep. a lot in your process, yep. and then to like manuscript to arc and then
1: to book. Well, yeah. well, the heart of my creative practice is attentiveness, paying attention, right? So I uh, I can't write or revise every day. That sounds quite undoable. It's undoable for me, uh, outlandish, impossible uh, for me as a writer to sit down every day. I think that's a task of memoir and prose writers. So I let them enjoy that daily task. Uh, I can't write and revise every day, but, but I can pay attention every day. And I do, right? I move through the world being very attentive. Uh, making, have all my five senses open to the world, right? And every day, I jot down observations, uh, things I misheard, things I touched, things I taste in my notebooks, right? Being uh, normal little moleskins, because I'm a very pretentious young poet, so I have moleskins. And also after a while, when people find out you're just, you're a poet, that's all you get for like Christmas or, uh, or uh, birthday gifts, <laughs> gift cards or notebooks, <laughs> that's how you get So I made peace with it, right? So I, I jot down every day, uh, into my notebooks, uh, both mold scans and in my device, my iPhone, because that's one thing that's kind of always constant by my side, right? So, I moved through all paying attention, and it, it's a slow process for me. It took nine and a half years to write my first book, Slow Lightning. It took about eight years from a, a first poem to finishing uh, the last poem for guillotine. So, I'm very slow and deliberate. Um, but, in the last six months, the process quickens, because you get, final you know the final galleys right everything no more changes allowed right but every time i read that sentence in the email from the press this is it no more <laughs> no more changes right i almost take it personally <laughs> like a personal insult so like what do you mean no more It's just because it's, it's just me right because up to the last minute i was changing things here and there right so uh, when you finally see it in it, in one of its first final forms right uh in a galley right uh it's quite shocking, uh, first of all, because I'm so slow. I reject so many things I write. I, th- I revise so many things I write to see that, oh, over these seven, eight years, I have been producing, I have been writing. It always comes to a, uh, it always comes a surprise, a shock even, that I have, I, have, I have been productive. I have managed to write a book. Then I managed to write another book. It really is surprising to me because I think of myself as very slow and deliberate.
0: I love that, that you say it's almost like a shock, like you're looking at yourself and you're like, oh yeah, I, I made that and that yeah. was quite good.
1: To, to quote uh, our from so, right? the 90s, oops, I did it again, right? <laughs> I <remember>. oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> like, oops, there
0: it is again. Hey, hey. though is that on your playlist for no, living no, writers?
1: No, 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 no. <laughs> no.
0: But I I but I hear we have French pop songs to look
1: forward to. I do because you know uh at the beginning, beginning of the, at the beginning of the pandemic something really uh I just couldn't read or write, right? I mean, I, especially poetry, right? I couldn't read lyric poems because when you read a lyric poem, you're engaged with somebody else's interiority, the lyric speaker's sense of being, right? Their thoughts, their emotions, their interiority, who they are, right? You're pulled into that interiority uh via the lyric, right? And I didn't want that because I was spending all day on my couch thinking and thinking, right? I had all the interiority I could handle, my own. So just reading a lyric poem, uh, it it felt intrusive, right? I I, I needed to be by myself, right, in this moment, uh, especially at the beginning of the pandemic. I just needed to be by myself, my own thinking. I couldn't read lyric poems. I could read novels, because novels have that world building. The sentence is propulsive, right? A happens, B happens, right? There's a, there's a momentum, right? Not a, not a pulling inward, what the lyric does, right? There's momentum to fiction. And I was able to dive into that and just kind of escape my, my mind for a while and escape the world for a while, which I found absolutely very necessary and, and, and wonderful. I needed that, right? But it took a few months to get back to the lyric, um, to lyric poems, but I'm back there again, enjoying it. But I needed a break
0: and and it sounds like what the the novel like reading novels allowed for too is that it was it like you said it was like an escape into it because it was into something that wasn't i mean even if there's interiority within the novel it's different it's like broader yeah. like you're saying it's not like going into something so intimate yeah with another That's, mind yeah, in some I way
1: yeah, i mean i hate to be uh, speaking generalities because that's true because then like joyce yeah, pr- yeah prose can be lyrical and, and full and full of detail and, and, and lyrical grace too right and prose and l- lyrics can be also have proportions and narrative elements too at the end of the day right but you're right i just i needed that kind of uh, escape and i needed that kind of world building right because it was a world not my own <laughs> right and uh, the world that I'm living, that we all live in right now, it's scary and uncertain, so I need to kind of escape. And also, I must give a shout-out to Eduardo from January 2020, who had the foresight to say to himself, you know, you should probably get cable this year. <laughs> so in January, I, I, I set up my TV that I had in storage for years. I haven't had a TV or cable for over eight years. I set up my TV, I ordered my cable package, and there it was. And when the pandemic hit, I was like, Thank you, Eduardo, January 2020, because I needed it. I needed it. <laughs> I needed it. I another like, wow.
0: Another lifeline.
1: Another escape. Another escape hatch. An escape pod. Right. Right. Yeah. Really? Because I've heard about all these shows, series, uh, reality shows. Because I'm on on Twitter, Facebook continuously. I, so I've heard, I know all about these shows. I've heard about them. Right? these shows for my friends. I've read essays about these shows. Right? I read essays about these shows. I've read essays about these shows, even though I haven't watched them, but it was good to watch them, like The Watchmen or The Great British Bake Off, which I instantly fell in love with, right? <laughs> Amazing. So all this kind of stuff. Then old shows from my childhood or early adulthood, like Star Trek, this, um, Voyager, that kind of stuff, right? It was really wonderful, right? Another, yes, another way to escape the world and just to uh, have some kind of pleasure, Right, some pleasure.
0: And it, and it sounds like going back to if, like the Voyager, the Star Trek Voyager, like a time when you were a child and things were, were different. I mean, there's, there's always complications even when we're kids. Like I think it's, yeah. it's kind of silly when people are like, oh, the childhood of like, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, but But there's something about the way our mind moves when we're a child too. And yeah, and maybe there aren't things right. All queued up for every day. Yeah. Sometimes,
1: <laughs> of course, it varies from your your own personal experience. It varies by culture, by class, right? It varies by the kind of family you have, right? But I mean, from each year, I mean, we push against different things, right? And different things push against us year by year, right? When you're younger, there're different things you push against, right? When you're a teenager, you're rebelling against family, your home life, right? And when you're uh, when you're my age, you're rebelling against, you know. And uh, insomnia, <laughs> you're you know sore feet. Uh, it's it's all <laughs> so different kind of thing, right? So, you know, time has its way with us, right? So,
0: yes, yes, and that time—it's it moves so strange, strangely these days. It's it's almost quick and slow at the same time. It, it, it's it, hard to.
1: Simultaneously, <laughs> it is. It is. It is to you, and it, it's so annoying, right? Because you, you're you're you move through the day, and like this is so slow like come on when come on next hour move come on arrive next minute next hour or next right then it is the next hour and it is the next day and you're like wait when did that happen <laughs> right? it's September 16th today is September 16th yeah today it felt like the first of the month completely and
0: yeah. and it really feels like fall is here and definitely university
1: life is Carolina. rolling and yeah, yeah. weather wise here in Raleigh North Carolina you know fall is coming right last night I was sleep with my windows open and uh last night I had to get a blanket for the first time for, uh, for uh, this fall right like ah oh, it's, it's, it's approaching well I say we're technically still in summer but fall is right. around the corner right <laughs> oh how you get fall already I forgot I lose track of time <laughs> no. we might be in fall I don't know I hear this from all my writer friends, right? You know, writers, artists in general, artists in general, we crave and need uh, solitude, right? Solitude, right? We need to pull away from the world every once in a while. The difference is um, there's no agency here, right? We're not pulling away from the world because we need to concentrate on something or we need to just be by ourselves we are forced to pull away from the world. We are told we need to do this because our own health, the health of our own community, which absolutely makes sense and is necessary, right? But it's that distinction, the the lack of agency, right? uh, From uh, pulling away from the world, right? That makes, for me, the solitude not as enriching, as nourishing as it usually is, right? It's, uh, when, before the pandemic, when I was by myself, by choice, I was able to work and think, right? Uh, but now, uh, I was, in another way I was, another way to think about it, I was, I was able to cut myself off from the world for an hour, for half a day, for a day. Now, there's no way to cut off the world. It's just there, it's just there continuously. It's, out, you know, it's everywhere, right? I, I, I look out my window and there's somebody walking by by a mask, wearing a mask, which is wonderful. We should all be wearing masks, right? But then it reminds you, why do we need to be wearing masks, right? So yes. it's there. And this is why, again, those, uh, those French pop songs were very important to me because I haven't, I can't, I've spent maybe, maybe close to maybe two months in France uh, during my lifetime, but I don't know, a lick of French, right? <laughs> Not a lick of French, right? But that's why, again, I love these French pop songs, the French songs, because I can, I can enjoy the music, the melody, the vocal performance, but I don't know what's going on. And I like that. I like that kind of displacement from meaning, uh, right? Because everything, you, do everything you also... means so much right now, right? Everything's so fraught with meaning, right? And, and and I like not knowing. I like not knowing right now, here and there.
0: Yeah. That, well, because the, the not knowing, I think, is like the gift that, like, the writer needs. Yes. Like And being, like, comfortable in that, like, being able to occupy that not knowing, right? Because that's the only way the, the making
1: will happen. Yes. That's, yeah. One of the biggest breakthroughs I had postgraduate school was these two ideas that came one after another. One was just not to imagine an audience for any of my work, right? Right? Because if I imagine an audience for my work, I was probably unconsciously working the language for that audience so they would understand or would resonate with them a little extra right so I was kind of narrowing the possibilities for my language instead of expanding possibilities for my language on the page and uh, that was very important for me to stop thinking about audience and also to stop writing with intention intentionality right i remember when i first started writing poems as an undergrad at arizona state university i would sit down and say i'm going to write a poem about my grandmother crossing the desert and the reader is going to feel really bad about it. <laughs> I'm going to sit down at the desk and write a poem about my ex-boyfriend and the reader's going to hate him, right? There's all this intentionality. <laughs> As they right? should. As they should, right? As they should, right? You hear that, Robert? Uh, anyway, <laughs> but all of this kind of intentionality, notions of audience, I mean, I found, for me, they just narrowed, right? There narrow, were narrowings instead of enlargements, uh, possibilities. I want possibilities for the language, right? So,
0: so is that something... So, god, I've got like 20 questions now for you, <laughs> which I ask first. Um, is this sort of, are you, is this kind of an influence that you got from Robert Hayden, like this resistance to some particular
1: audience it, or? It, 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 it's really tricky for all writers and especially I think writers for writers of color, writers from so-called marginalized positions in society uh, because there's sometimes based on your last name or the way you present yourself the way you are visible in the world there's subject matter expectations right, and mm-hmm. I mean you need to write what you need to write about if that if that lines overlaps with a certain expectation, so be it right but yeah it's it's a tricky kind of thing it 's like what do I write about right this is why I was I stopped thinking about audiences, see what came to me right if I stopped thinking about an audience right and Robert Hayden has always Robert Hayden has always been very important to me right because I've said this in interviews. You know, for the longest time, for the first book, I struggled. Is this too Latinx? Is this too queer? Is it not Latinx enough? Is it not queer enough? Is is there enough of the border here, et cetera, et cetera? Right. And reading Robert Hayden, his slim body of work, uh, and he just rejected all kind of labels. He wanted to be known just as a poet, which is fine. I'm I'm not there myself. I, lo- I love being known as a Latinx poet, a queer poet, a border poet. Right. Uh, to to borrow a. Uh, uh, so I'm thinking about Jericho Brown, he, you know, he says anytime you see like a, a, a modifier, right, or adjective in front of the word poet, those are not constrictions. They're additional windows, right, yeah. for, for for the poet to see, right? Again, more possibilities, enlarge, enlarging the possibilities for the work for you as a writer, right? So, but Hayden did taught me, you know, for and for the
0: reader too. For the reader, like too, the worlds reader. need to be enlarged, <laughs>
1: yeah. and, and worlds overlapped too, right? Yes. The you know, self is plural. I am many things at once. The self is an abundance, all right. And also, the self is fluid in flux. Right? Who I was five years ago is not who I was, who I am today, and who I am in the future is not hopefully not the same person I am today, right? So, if the self you know is in flux, right? So of course. My poems, my influences, my approach to language is always in flux, too, right? It made me shaped. But Hayden was one of the primary shapers and still one of the primary shapers of my, of my aesthetics, my approach to language, because he just taught me the simple lesson of craft, all right? How craft is so vital, right, that the poem has to exist on its own kind of merits, quote, unquote, right? It has to have its own kind of resonance, its own pleasures, right? So
0: and and so it's interesting to think about uh, like considering guillotine like for, like like how there's different like the way the shapes that the poems take on the page and yeah, what
2: sure.
0: they're doing and what they're um resisting and like doing di- cuz you know there's yeah or, or yeah here's one like song of the open road too mm-hmm. like i feel like the connecting back to the whitman who yeah, you're yeah. just calling upon there for a moment too yeah. and um but then other pages like yeah where yeah, the yeah. the words are shadows and um overlapping like you were just talking about and some bolded and,
1: and braids yeah 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 for me yeah those are uh, there's a more typographical play in guillotine than there is in the first book. I just wanted because sometimes um, a lot of the work, especially the testament sequence in in guillotine is voice driven, right? There are voices, personas, uh, other characters, right, that came to me, right? Um, And sometimes they came to me simultaneously, so I would hear two or three voices, and some of these kind of blurred, braided uh, typographical poems try to capture that kind of a uh, feeling that, you know, like m- many things coming at you at once, which I think many people understand in our in our age where we're surrounded by information, saturated by information and imagery, right? Everything's coming at us simultaneously, right? It's a bit, it could be overwhelming, right? It could be overwhelming. So I just wanted to capture that sense on the page, right, of uh, linguistic or voice or, the voice is overwhelming, right? The page, like right? Like, so they as they sometimes overwhelm us, right? Influence yes. memories, emotions, intellectual states. And we, we're overwhelmed by that. Right.
0: So for those particular poems, Eduardo, when you when you were writing those in the notebook, like mm-hmm. is that like is that how you were writing it? Like almost like with a pencil and you turned like the lead on the side to make <laughs> it thicker or like, yeah, how did it, how did the making part of that happen? Because like You've talked about the hearing it, the yeah. impulse.
1: I, I have a very strict drafting kind of policy. Like, at least I have, I need to have at least ten drafts by hand before I leave to the laptop, uh, because the cleanness of the screen. It, it, it tricks the eye. I'm like, oh, that, that looks clean. It looks like it's been published online already, right? Like an online journal. I don't like what that does to my eye and, and a false sense of like accomplishment. Oh, it looks clean already, right? It looks publishable. Uh, so I, I wait at least ten. Dra- I need ten drafts by hand before I leap to the screen. But when it comes to the typographical poems, I would spend. You know, I'm a night owl, so uh, for years I would from two to five or six a.m. I would just play around with language on my word processing uh, systems I have on my laptop, right? So I would just mess around, play around, braid things, blur things, do this. And it took hours and hours and hours to find the right kind of shape, right? And some of them feel imprecise too. I feel some of them are not where they need to be, but I also like that, they're incomplete, right? Right, Yeah, why
0: is that important? Like if the imprecise, like what does that allow then or become part of the experience of the poem?
1: One thing I wanted to, there are two things I wanted different from slow lightning and from the poems of slow lightning to the poems of guillotine for nine and a half years I worked on slow lightning every 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 darn syllable in that book was thumbed over uh, so I still can't escape the sense that some of the poems are a bit overwrought they they 're tight tight they just, just too clean they 're just, too, just clean. too 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 crafted, uh, not many of them, uh, uh, but some of them I just feel they're uh, the spark has been kind of um, touched out of them, right? Kind of smoothed out. So I was very weary of that for the second book, right? I was like, okay, I'm going to take it as far as I can, but I'm not going to go really, really obsessive about making this draft as perfect I am, as i imagine it can be right they have it have its flaws and that its flaws and I, not only the typographical stuff but always, it's just the lyric poems to themselves right I could, have, I could have spent two or more years fine-tuning those poems right but it would have not made much of a difference at the end of the day it would have been a phrase here a different shape of a line and uh, that was an that was, I think, that's not enough time that's not it's not worth it for me i think to spend that much time well, for well,
0: but, but it also feels like you, because you have a different, um, like you want something different from these poems and, and maybe more fe- like your, the future poems too. Yeah. Although I love your idea of that 10, 10 handwritten, you know, because cause that feels like things are still, there's friction there because it's even the physical act of that is different in a way. <laughs> yeah.
1: And this, is a, this could be also very generational, right? Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, I, I, I didn't have a computer growing up, right? I, I didn't get a computer to, I think, in, 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 way after graduate school. So, But if you, can, if you were born and raised with devices, uh, tapping on or, or writing on them is natural and organic for you, right? So mm-hmm. it, it, it is a very generational thing, too, right? Mm-hmm. And also because the second book is full of, of human utterances, so of... of, of utterances not rooted in my body and my own personal experiences, right? And uh, I didn't want to fine tune those too much because I felt like I wasn't going to be imposing too much of myself onto those voices, which sounds silly because I'm the one kind of channeling, channeling those voices. I'm the one putting those voices on the page. So I'm the one, you know, kind of manipulating, modulating them from the get go. But I didn't want to just do it. I didn't want to obsess over getting it just right, because I, I see these testament sequences as human utterance, voices on the page, right? And as we know, when we have conversations or dialogues with other people, uh, people have a little ticks in the way they say things, right? The enunciation might be a bit off. They stutter here and there, right? They, mis- they mispronounce a the third sil- syllable in a word. I wanted that to kind of bring, stay there, all right? a bit
0: that's very human too
1: yes also, yes yes
0: that's and so so did the testaments for in guillotine that that started from an ekphrastic poem um yes. can, yeah, can you talk about how yeah this how this started for you eduardo
1: yes the, the, the heart of the book and nearly half of the book uh, of the second book guillotine is these uh, persona poems, these voice driven poems of immigrants, both Mexican and Central American, moving into southern Arizona on their way to other places in this country, right? So they're they're migrating, right? They're they're immigrants, right? But they're moving through the harsh terrain of southern Arizona, where in the summer it gets 118, 121, right? There are several human rights organizations that set up plastic barrels along footpaths, known uh, footpaths, uh, trails, used by immigrants so right? they know people use them right so they set these water stations up right for them to find water right when they need to right and maybe uh, prevent uh, some deaths right because people do die out there from thirst and hunger right and from the weather uh, the, the beating sun so when I saw this uh, this photograph by, uh, by Montoya uh, this photograph of this blue barrel right I just saw those barrels that plastic as a space where people can score, can scratch, can write uh, confessions, rants, curses, hexes, jokes. Uh, right? I saw it as as a space, as a text. Right? A space where people, immigrants, right, uh, Mexicans, Central Americans, can inscribe their thoughts.
0: I was it was here,
1: mm-hmm.
0: like this sense of like like you're saying like these testaments. I was here. This was.
1: Mm-hmm. I was, he, I was here, yes, but, uh, but deliberately nobody's named in the testament sequence. I didn't want to give uh, that kind of, to name somebody is to give something of yourself, you give some of your identity, some of your uh, presence uh, and being to a, another person. And I, I wanted to, I didn't want to give that to the reader. Right. I don't want to give that a reader, right? I wanted the focus on the voices, the cascading of the of the human mind, the thinking, right? I wanted the thinking to be center, not the bodies, because bodies of the bodies of immigrants in this country are reduced to labor. They're here to take our jobs, they're here to do the jobs no Americans would do. They're here to work in our kitchens, they're here to tend to our fields. So all these immigrants are, are reduced in the Western imagination, the American imagination into physical things right often devoid of a heart or a mind right this is why i center the thinking of of these people my gente, right um, the relatives these are my relatives these are my family members right i i wanted to center the thinking not names identities or you know even rarely is a body described rarely, right right and also rarely do they kind of uh, explain why they're moving, right? They don't give a reason. They don't try to justify why they're moving from one place to another, right, for the most part, right? Because, I, you know, I didn't want to root these voices. I don't want, I don't want to root my work in the narrowness of the American imagination, right? I don't want that, right? I don't want that at all, at all. And uh, because if I start giving in to that narrowness of the American imagination or wo- root my work in there, uh, I I I I'm, I'm basically saying I give up, right? <laughs> I, I I can't do that. I'm overwhelmed by the narrowness. I, I am overwhelmed by it in a certain sense, but I will not let my imagination be overwhelmed by it, right?
0: Yeah, and I think and would would is it like, what do you think? Is it fair to say that part of the reason, like both languages are moving together? You've got Spanish and English, and and because it's part of that like part of what you're talking about eduardo is is that is
1: that right well, the idea, well you know code switching is in my first book and it's switching is in my second book There's moving backs from english and spanish my english is my spanish is never italicized or put in context there's not a glossary in back of the first book there's not, there's not a glossary in the back of the second book right it's centering both in it's not centering one language over another right it just making putting them on equal footing right in, in my work in my imagination yeah that said i mean most of the work is in english so there is a kind of a hierarchy set in because i tend to think mostly in english right because i even though spanish was my first tongue it has been educated out of me at the end of the day all right mm-hmm. but it's also very complicated too because when people think about okay you're working with spanish as a way to like disrupt a, a colonial mindset or, or colonial language people, people often forget Spanish itself is a colonial tongue. Right, <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah, these are two colonial tongues I'm working with. Right? This is how complicated things are, right? <laughs> how complicit we all are, are, right? So, yes, because Mexico is a, is a settler state too, right? Uh, they, uh, uh, mestizos, I notion of mestizos are half Spanish, half indigenous, is a way, to, really, quite frankly, to cancel out and to reduce indigenous people, indigenous cultures, right? So um, I'm very conscious of that, too. So I, I, you know, but this, the language, these are the languages I have, right? So I need to work with them, right? right? But I'm very conscious of that, right? There's, oh, there's valid critiques, and yeah? these, you know, these are colonial tongues too, right? So how can one colonial tongue, uh, you know, uh, be less another? colonial, <laughs> or, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. They're both drenched and riddled with those kind of contradictions and uh, tragedies, right? That continue to unfold.
0: Yeah, Eduardo, would you mind reading some of the testaments for us, so that that we can
1: hear what we've been talking about? Of course, of course. The first voice is, I I imagine, is a a young queer immigrant moving through the desert, uh, near death probably, and thinking about his father. In this, maybe, last few hours, last few days. This language pulls in Spanish. This language also pulls in a lot of uh, advertising language, as you'll catch. This is a poem from Testament Scratch into a Water Station Barrel. Apa, dying is boring. To pass las horas, I carve our last name all over my body. I try to recall the sweat, the taste of Pablo's sweat whiskey, no, wet dirt, see. I stuffed English into my mouth, spit out chingaderas, have it your way, home of the whopper, run for the border, aguas, the mirror betrayed us, erased your face from my face, gave me mother's smile, narrow nariz, once I wore her necklace, the gold slip obscene, God, I was beautiful. Cada noche I sleep with dead men, the coyote was the third to die, your, mem- your money is still in his wallet, quien engaña no gana. Apá, there's a photo in my bolsillo of a skeleton shrouded in black flames, Nuestra Señora de, Sa- de la Santa Muerte, patron saint of smugglers, pickpockets and jotos, La Flaca. Senora Negra, La Huesuda. Aguas. An animal is prowling the station. It shimmies with hunger. It shimmers with thirst. To keep it away, I hurl my memories at it. Your laughter is now snagged on its fangs. Your pain now breathes inside its lungs. Taste the feeling. Siempre Coca-Cola. America's real choice. I gathered and smashed bottles. Apa Follow the glass snaking from the barrel to a mesquite to find my body. Lips blue, skin thick with scabs. Apa, kneel in the shade, peel the scabs. Touch our last name, Solis. This poem is a, I imagine a woman uh, moving through the desert thinking of all the things she carries Uh, Eduardo, could we
0: could we talk a little bit about this poem first and then and then because thank you. Yeah, I was I was waiting because I was waiting for you to pause. I didn't want to start talking. until (laughs) like like, uh, the the finish moment. But um, yeah, so I love this poem. Thank you for choosing this one to read. And it's and it's the first of the testaments Mm -hmm. in guillotine. It's not the first poem in guillotine. Ceremonial is
1: yes. uh, a very personal, eye-centric poem. Yes, yes, yeah.
0: Yes.
1: Well, okay. there are, there are basically three sequences that composed uh, a Guillotine: the Testament sequence, of uh, are voice-driven poems um, of uh, immigrants moving and thinking uh, as they move through the desert. The second is a, very, a smaller sequence: is the Drop House poems drop houses are places where uh, immigrants are brought by the, their human smugglers and held ransom into their families can pay way more than they agreed to for the for the for for, for being moved in from mexico or Central america into the united states uh they're very they used to be very common in southern arizona phoenix the capital of arizona uh they have gone down they're not as common as as before but they're still there like, they're very horrible places where people are just Crowd into a room 30, 40 deep, right? And people just wait for their family members to pay the ransom so they can be released. And the third sequence is a little more, is a more loose sequence, but it's about unrequited love, a lyric speaker yearning for another, another who cannot return those feelings. So those are the three sequences basically that can make up guillotine.
0: And, and, and Eduardo, can you say, um... Because it feels right, like it feels like it's a, like guillotine is itself, like it's like it, how it moves together, you know, the moving and thinking and, and feeling of it. Is it because this is what the work was presenting to you that you also felt them in relationship or, or yeah, or how, how did that work for you? or are, are there some poems that didn't make it into guillotine?
1: There are poems that didn't make it to guillotine and poems that in my imagination probably should have been in guillotine but there's not time enough to write them or I just I, just oh. I or I didn't have the skill set yet to write them and that happened for the first book Slow Lightning. There are a couple of poems in guillotine the more personal poems that I wanted I think in the first book but I couldn't get to them because I couldn't write them at that time but I could write them afterwards, right? And there's a couple of those poems in my mind that I think I thought belonged in Guillotine, but I wasn't ready or willing to write them, maybe. Uh, so they'll probably be for the third book. But structurally, order-wise, I, for me, I have a hard time structuring my books. I remember uh, when Carl Phillips called me to say that I had one the Yale series for the first book. He was very sweet and very wonderful. But I remember one of, the, one of the things he did tell me that he said, your title is off and your order is atrocious. <laughs> <laughs> wow carl bringing the truth the truth bomb <laughs> and i i knew he was right because those were the things in the back of my head when i sent it off right you know i sent it off i drove to the post office in castor Grand, arizona at four thirty. 30 you know close at five o'clock the mm. day the yale series had its postmark deadline right sitting in my car thinking it's not ready if these poems are not good who's gonna buy this what are you doing right but i said i just said you, re- you really got the check written you ready bridge it out it's mailed stamped you know it's stamped already send it out send it out right but even at the last minute i was doubting myself uh, anxiety but i did know things were off about the manuscript and two of the things i knew were off were the title and the order for the first and third section and it, i was glad to hear that so we, he helped me find in order, right? And for the second book I actually had uh, the help of my editor at uh, Grey Wolf, Jeff Schatz, who was an intentive immense reader of poetry. So he knew like structurally uh what kind of suggestions to make, right? For example, there's a poem called Questions for My Body, but there are no question marks at the end of the questions, right, right there's no question marks, right? And I had another poem there, the postmortem, that's very similar, ask a question and an answer, right? But I did have question marks there, right? He says, why do you just take out the question marks here? So there's kind of a, a, an echo there, right? So like stuff like that just helped me like unite and bridge everything together, right? And mm-hmm. once I realized that there was going to be a, uh, the Testament is going to be a huge part of the second book, then I realized, oh, these other more personal poems, these this very icentric centric poems themselves would be another kind of grouping. Testament. Right? Uh, and yeah, testament. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and Testament, uh, Testament is a different kind, a personal hurt, an intimate hurt, right? And the word guillotine makes sense to me because the no, the notions from obvious the border itself as a guillotine, right? All right, and also the guillotine of. Of desire and love, you know, cutting us from re- us from reality, right? Uh, so that kind of resonated with both the the persona poems and, te- and testament, and also the more intimate poems, right? Unrequited love, being unwanted from one nation state for another nation state, cut uh, off, uh, yeah. yeah, cut off, yeah, yeah, and wounded, right, right, yeah, the, yeah. The wound, as a, you know, there's a line in the book that was really haunting haunting and it, it was it was in my head for years before i put it in a poem because it became kind of a kind of a, a compass for me uh, is that my saying that right a compa- yeah a compass right it, it helped me kind of figure out the rest of the poems like directing me where where oh, I compass yeah 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. Is, yeah yeah uh a wound is a self-reporting instrument right like like i carry that for a long time because it was yeah all these type of different kind of hurts right were directing me to language to imagery right so
0: and guillotine actually it comes it wasn't it wasn't in the the first poem that you read was it because i when it, it was oh it's in the um it's in the second one yeah yeah, yeah. Um, about, of, yeah. of the testaments because <laughs> i was like ah oh, here it is so yeah. it comes in relatively early and was that something that you did is that help was that Part of why you chose the structure of the order of the tem- testaments
1: well yeah, guillotine appears in the th- in the third poem in the book right and and, and, and then uh, and then appears in the first poem in the latter in the, no, let me see <laughs> yes there's no, the there's, there, poems are broken into cl- in sections clusters right so the section, the cluster that begins with the second epigraph from Elise, is, M- uh, the, it's yeah. the title poem yeah. for yeah. that. Yeah. It becomes the title poem, right? And then, of course, the mentioned guillotine, right? In the title itself, right? So it is kind of a stretched out, you know, from the beginning, then near the middle-ish, yeah, at the end of the day.
0: Yeah, but that's all like, um, it's it's ways that then you can see the the book is a body as well as the and the the connections and like main arteries or so or um. Yeah. Yeah. Um how um how how did you find your way back to the lyric Eduardo cuz you mentioned that and it feels like reading your poems here it's hard to see you cut off from that
1: well, it, 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 it was it was surprising for me too that I couldn't return to the lyric space for for a while at the beginning of the pandemic right but after a while because you know I love poetry. I love lyric poems, right? I'm a reader before I'm a writer, and I just, I just craved it after a while, right? I, just, I craved it, right? And uh, even though I wasn't reading poetry at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, I was still moving through, moving through the world or moving through my apartment, attentive, right? i paying attention to things as much as I could. Uh, so that never went away. That kind of attentiveness, you know, which is the heart of my creative practice. Uh, so that just being a, attentive noticing things or things that are not very beautiful or things are bewildering it just led me back to the poem itself because i was i, I had enough of break that i was ready to, to engage with an, a lyric speaker right somebody else's interiority right right yes. also because uh, the, all those personal poems i keep saying it is that it was the pandemic that kind of put me off the lyric poem the interiority but it about that same time, I, I realized that the book was—it you know, was done, right? You know, I was on get a finished copy. I think in a month or so, right? So maybe that had a, a ro- something to do with it too. Like psychologically, I was kind of like preparing myself, right, for uh, for the book's release in August because those eye-centered poems are very intimate, and they're very—I—I uh, I, I feel very. Vulnerable and raw and and exposed. When I read those poems out loud, right? like ceremonial or autobiography of my hungers, right? Uh, uh, I remember the first time I read ceremonial years, about four years ago, at a retreat, and and I, I cried <laughs> halfway through it because I wasn't ready to release it, right? So I learned, okay, yeah, you're not ready to talk about this, so you're not ready to read these, right? So I stopped reading it for a while, and I kept most of the new poems secret until I was ready to uh, emotionally to read them, right? Because for me, I, I just feel emotionally devastated uh, reading them again and again. It gets better each time I do it, uh, right? There's more distance, right? Uh, but I think now just talking to you, Tirana, it makes sense that one of the reasons I kind of moved away from the lyric is because uh, uh, I was oversaturated, I was just, I needed a break from my own kind of uh, vulnerability, my own kind of uh, uh, exposure to my own kind of hurt, right, and woundedness, right, that that I found found on the page again and again. And I knew I was going to be doing a lot come the fall, (laughs) right? So, right, right.
0: Yeah. That kind of
1: makes sense, yeah. That
0: that does, that does. How did you, so when did you know ceremonial would be the, the, the lead poem that becomes the lens of guillotine.
1: It's one of the last moves we, me, I did for the order because I I kept, I kept thinking for the longest time. Again, intention, right, which is my enemy, but there I was, intention, right? Uh, I I kept, because guillotine, right? A clean cut, right, guillotine, right? It it breaks something, right? divides something usually into two, right? I think this book has been two sections, two movements, the personal poems, maybe the first and the, the, last, the second, all that voice-driven, the testament sequence, right? But then we had the shorter sequence, the drop house sequence, right? And then and that didn't kind of fit in there. Like, so are we gonna have like a smaller third section? I don't want a three-section book, second book. I already had a three-section first book. I don't want that for the second book. So that didn't kind of make sense to me. And then I realized when I put all the intimate poems together, all the eye centric poems, it was overwhelming to have them all side by side it was way too much for the reader it was way too much emotion too much uh too much rawness there right so like how do we break it up how do you break it up so i i, I one day just dawned on me how about i just move ceremonial to the beginning like a preface right a front piece an entrance right uh, yeah right and then that is a very that's a very emotionally rich poem right so that kind of but just removing it from the more the other personal poems those pumps were allowed to breathe a bit more. There was more room for them to breathe, right? Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. I moved uh, the shorter sequence, the, t- the drop house poem, to its own little section. So that kind of made sense. It was, it was by trial and error, finding it. it had a feel, I just knew it wasn't working. Jeff Schatz was helping me think about this structure, that order, when we were still thinking about just two sections. It just it never, nothing really appealed to me or nothing instinctively felt right. Because I trust my instincts now as a writer Right? I trust my instincts because I've been reading and honing them, reading other work and my own work, own work for so long so that I've honed them and I trust myself. One thing I do to, continuously to continue to hone my instincts, every time I read a poem that I really love in a journal, I, I mess it up. I say, okay, I love what Nally Diaz did with this line break, but I would do, break the line this way, right? I love what Ocean Vuong did image-wise here. I would phrase it this way. Right. Uh, I love the way Ricky, Ricky Laurentiis broke their poem this way. Right. I would, I would, I would break it this way. Right. Just a little slight thing I do. Right. Just, just, I keep building up my instincts, honing my instincts as, as a, as, as a writer, my own aesthetics.
0: Right. Yeah. Right.
1: right.
0: Yeah. That is so, um, do you, do you do translating Eduardo at all too? Like
1: Some, small snippets of Spanish poems, German poems from my, in my own notebooks. I own notebooks. Just because just that brief engagement with other grammars, other musics, I find very helpful. Yeah, very helpful. Yeah. That's
0: what, when, when you were when you were talking, that's what I was thinking when, because um, I would try to, like, to, to re-engage with learning Spanish that I had learned in undergrad, but yeah. when I got back into an MFA program, I had these Pablo Neruda books, which, because yeah. at that time, Copper Canyon Press was publishing um, the Spanish with the English, so you could yeah. have both, and yeah. then I would have different translations of uh, Neruda, and so then I would also find myself, as I got I think whatever, a little better at it. I don't know. Now I'm thinking I should just not be say- telling you this story. But I would think that translator did not get this right, yeah, <laughs> and this I, is what I, I, I would kind of, do.
1: Yeah, I see that a lot, especially with a lot of Lorca translations, right? Like that's that phrasing is a bit off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't? It's not vivid enough. Or okay, but, yeah. There's another. There's there's Spanish vernacular that could do that kind of, that closer. To this in you know, a clean academic Spanish that are using instead right yeah so every translation is a, you know is a' is a different is a translation right it's a, it's a ghost right It's, a, it's a, a translation is a ghost that exists between the original and the and the new text right it's just lovely Com- yeah.
0: completely because it's kind of a new thing right that the, yeah. another maker is there
1: exactly yeah With- so yeah so I'm at that stage where I do trust my instincts and, and I just didn't figure, when we finally figured out the order of the ceremony at the beginning, the testaments and some intimate poems with some border poems, like the Border Patrol agent poem and the um, Song of the Open Road and the Commercial Break poem also embedded there, it kind of made, make sense right they felt good right though because it also what i was doing again with this like this insistence of having two sections for the uh for at the original order of guillotine i was i was blocking my order right like all testament poems here <laughs> all i-centric poems here for them and I, I was blocking which is what, which i did for slow lining for the first and third sections which were the sections Carl Feld was didn't like right I, I was i was blocking all right so i was doing that again right we uh, what are we gonna do right so <laughs> I, I, because you sometimes you, you just don't know your work all uh, right you, you're just too close to it to really see it that's why you need friends or readers right but that said, you know I, I had such a horrible time at iowa that i never share my work with anybody i rarely share my work with everybody anybody right i just don't like that the notion of being workshop has really kind of um, I just find that kind of traumatic. I don't want to return to that, right? But with Jeff Schatz, it was different because he was an editor, right? He had mm-hmm. he had a, he had a, a vision uh, and an appreciation for the work, right? And, and uh, I, I enjoyed that process immensely because it, it was immensely helpful having his eyes and his opinions on the work. And he, I think
0: he, because just don't you think he had like a type of a different type of understanding of it, but in keeping with an awareness of your vision
1: yes yes and he was he was firm but uh but also encouraging i mean i remember i wanted to include a very small little image and i wanted to include a very small image driven poem at the end uh, near the end of the uh, putting together process and he had a had an image about pupils uh uh windows hatching out of a pupil he goes you know isn't that kind of a well-worn trope <laughs> Other way to say cliche, right? <laughs> oh, it was nice that he put it that way, though. And, uh, like, well, you you know, right. That is kind of true. right? so just let's just forget that that little poem, right? So
0: yeah, but so some of those little poems, though, it's the hardest to let go of those because they're like yeah. they 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 feel like when you when you have them, there's something in them that's like that spark. But then sometimes, if it's not enough of something for yeah. someone else, they're like, that's a bit flat.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, I have a, yeah. Not every you know every book you know needs peaks and valleys, highs and lows, and not every you know every book. Not every, poem in, not every poem in a book is going to be amazing, you know, jaw-droppingly good or, or have resonance with a reader. Well, every book needs what I call buttress poems, you know, you know to borrow a term from ar- um, architecture, right? A buttress uh, is, uh, supports a larger uh, a wall, right, or supports a portion of the building, right? My buttress poems, that's what I think about, they support themselves are kind of slight, Right and mm-hmm. maybe uh, mm-hmm. not so beautiful as the rest of the building, mm-hmm. but they're supporting right the the motifs, the themes, right, the language or the linguistic approach of the rest of the work, right. So it, both slow lining and gating have a, a few buttress poems in my the way mm-hmm. I see them, right. They're there to support do, other do, poems.
0: Do do they know they're the buttress poems?
1: Of course they don't. <laughs> They they think that they think that they're, they're my favorite children, right? <laughs> completely, completely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no. but I see. But I see. Like questions for my body is a buttress poem because it kind of rephrases and uh, rearticulates uh, the the hurt speaker's uh, emotional intellectual state, right? Palm uh, poem and and the Federico Garcia Lorca Park. That's a little buttress poem too, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. So, but. They work. I like how they work. Right there, there's some, there's some shine there. Some of the lines, and images, I really love. Right, but they're in service too uh, to the other poems, you know, that orbit them. They're supporting yeah. them.
0: I, yeah, I gotta say that I really do. I did really love questions. Um,
1: yeah, sure should, should I read it? Please, would you? Yeah, sure.
0: Do you have it? I've got too many dog ears right now to
1: jump. I I got here. Okay, this poem is titled, Questions for My Body. Why are you nocturnal? How many cathedrals have you entered? Has cruelty ever saved you? Do you remember the length of his thumbs? Isn't that enough cake? Have you ever soaked your feet in gasoline? Do you still fear the virus? How can you sleep in this heat? Is that a soap patch? Did you laugh or cry at Keats' grave? Have you been claimed? I love that the line "Do you still fear the virus?" is so it's different. It reads differently now. All right, so yeah, yeah. So like, oh, things, language. I love how language is so malleable and multi right? It casts so many different shadows. Like, a, one year it might it acquires new meaning because of what's going on, right? So...
0: And that one certainly does. Yeah, yeah. I think that's why it kind of was like a, like a, like a subtle knife for a moment. (laughs)
1: Yes, yes, it is like, like, whoa, 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 yeah. But that poem came to me years ago when I first went to uh, Lisboa, Portugal, to visit. I was entering a very beautiful cathedral. And uh, just the, the, the question, how many cathedrals have you entered during this trip? Right, and right, right. then I just I just shortened the thought. How many cathedrals have you entered? And that just stayed with me, and I knew I, I knew that was something. Right, right. Again, I trust my instincts. So into the notebook it went, and I let it just to I let it marinate. Uh, I dwelled with it, and eventually came to me. Right, eventually. Right, right. It took a while to narrow down how many questions there. The poem went from being like twenty questions just to five questions. I just found like a sweet spot between. Yeah. Yeah, but I eventually, I, again, I trusted my instincts. Oh, this feels about right. This feels about right. Enough questions, right? There's one humorous one. Is there? A, is that a soap patch? It usually falls flat. People like don't understand what it is. You know, like, <laughs>
0: I enjoyed it because I was just getting to know you, like researching you, and I was like, oh, Eduardo. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. It really falls flat. Yeah, but what are you going to do, right? I, I got a chuckle out of it whenever.
0: I... Eduardo, you also mentioned that there is there. I don't know. Is there another poem you'd want to read from Guillotine? Because I felt like I just kind of asked you to read that one. No. Um, it, is there, and is there one like because when you're talking about the poems that you knew were there but you you didn't yet have them until Guillotine? Are those are those some of the emotional the I poems?
1: Yes, because. I- I didn't know how to write about this kind of uh, experience, right? That felt that it, uh, it was very hard to go through, to experience. And I didn't know how to translate that kind of wound, that, that, that kind of self-inflicted wound, uh, how to translate onto the page, right? And um, it's just, I realized that, uh, you know, I had all these, like, you know, rules for myself, don't do that, don't do that, you know, don't have an audience, don't think about intentionality. But for the second book, I found myself like, uh, returning to, those, uh, uh, to, the, uh, to the time when I didn't have rules. So, so I was doing the same kind of spinning the wheels and overriding and writing in a way that wasn't beneficial because I was thinking with intention, right? I have, my intention was, I have to get right these poems. I have to say what actually happened. I had to cleave closer to the truth. I'm like, that never works for me <laughs> as a writer, right? Because, you know, language is not an animal we can train, all right? And again, I, I, I know that, I know that. But here I was trying to force that the language, my animal, to do certain things, right? And I'm like, no, right? Don't base it on the factual on the memory. Let the imagination also have its say, right? So when I turn that beloved into a composite figure, all right a bit of who it was a bit of somebody else a bit of somebody else a bit of an imagined person then i could start writing about that person in a way that was interesting right and alive like and
0: in, a, in, in, alive. in and, its uh, own way mm-hmm.
1: and, and for the poem autobiography of my hungers it, it's kind of set in this in uh, a, 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 a booth in a bar right for the longest time i just could not write the poem in a way that was interesting or satisfying because all the language was moving through that one specific moment. Yeah, these two people at a bar, right, in a booth, right? That's what the poem just kept moving through, right? right? So in a sense, that little, that memory became a constriction. I was forcing all the language into this narrowness, this constriction, the room had no language to move. The, the language had no space to breathe, no space to move, right? right? Only when I made that memory a filter, I pushed other experiences, other memories, other kind of languages through it, then it made sense. Right? Could you could you read that one for us, Eduardo? Yeah, of course. That poem became not only about that moment, right? About the speaker and, and the beloved, right? The unrequited love kind of moment there, right? But it also became about growing up uh, during the AIDS epidemic, right? Thinking that thinness equated the first symptom of the disease, that kind of stuff, my mother's reaction to that. So it became more multivalent, richer, right? And I, and I did that again and again for the first book. I, I, I made my memories filters, right? More possibilities for the language. But again, for the second book, I, I just I just thought I could do it differently, and it never worked out, right? So I had to return to my rules. And it, was, it, it helped, it helped at the end of the day. It helped me write the second book, the rules that I imposed on myself. This is kind of a keystone poem in in the book. It kind of informs the rest of the kind of eye centric poems. It kind of gives the narrative a story, right? Uh, This title is actually the title of a a memoir by one of my mentors, uh, Rigoberto Gonzalez. So I got to give him a nod for that title. It's a beautiful title, Autobiography of My Hungers. His beard, an avalanche of honey, an avalanche of thorns, in a bar too close to the Pacific, he said, "I don't love you, but not because I couldn't be attracted to you. Liar! Even my soul is potbellied. Thinness in my mind equals the gay men on the nightly news, kissed by death and public scorn. The anchorman declaring weight loss is one of the first symptoms. The Portuguese have a word for imaginary." never to be experienced love whoop-de-doo i don't love you he said the words flung him back in his eyes i saw it to another bar where a woman sidestepped his desire another hunger our friendship in 10th grade weeks after my first kiss my mother said you're looking thinner that evening i smuggled a cake into my room I ate it with my hands, licked buttercream off my thumbs until I puked, desire with no future, bitter longing. I starve myself by yearning for intimacy that doesn't and won't exist, holding hands on a ferry, tracing with the tip of my tongue a jawline. In a bar too close to the Pacific, he said, I don't love you, but not because I couldn't be attracted to you. His beard, an avalanche of thorns, an avalanche of honey.
0: Thank you, Eduardo.
1: My pleasure, T.
0: Thank you so much for talking with me today. I've loved it.
1: Thank you. It my pleasure. My pleasure.
0: Thank you for the poems. And and I'll say today on Living Writers, Eduardo C. Corral, guillotine. I'm T Hetzel. Until next time.
2: Welcome everybody back to the daily sports report here on eighty-eight point three WCBN FM. My name is Charlie Brigham, and alongside me, I have three wonderful panelists today. We've got Ryan Dolson, Connor Irgood, and Zach Levine. How are you guys doing today? I am doing pretty excellent. Got a great day, and so many different sports topics to talk about, to say the least. Yeah, I can't complain myself. Bunch of big news in just about every league. And we have a fight going on at the U of M soccer game. So it's a good yes, day. Yes. Yes. Breaking news. As indeed. Just broken out. Yeah. So obviously still recording these uh the night before this airs. So this will air on um September twenty second. Um currently we're recording it on the night of September twenty first. But yeah, currently ongoing. Um there is a Michigan soccer game and a fight has broken out. I don't really know all of the details on that, but that's an exciting little tidbit of information for everybody at home. Indeed. It was uh I believe the games against Notre Dame, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And uh what did somebody say the guy's name was? I Googled it before we started and I Yeah, completely Patty, lost Burns. It. Patty Burns. Patty Burns. <laughs> Absolute legend from North Ireland. Yeah. So that's mostly. electric. Great way to great way to get the season rolling, honestly.
1: Yeah, for sure,
2: for sure. I give you a little bit of an itinerary today. Probably going to be a good chunk of this uh, half hour devoted to basketball. A good few stories in the NBA developing today. Maybe we'll move on to some football later. But the first story that I want to touch on from our boy Waj: Ben Simmons will not report uh, to 76ers training camp. Said that he wants a trade out of Philadelphia and told uh, management that quote, he has no plans to wear an NBA uniform again.